Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. I want you to do something for me right at the top here. Would you take a deep breath in? And a deep breath out. Some of y'all haven't done that in a while. (laughs) But if you did that, I know something about you. I know that you are fighting a hard battle. You go, Chris, how in the world could you know that by the fact that I breathed in and breathed out? Well, I know it because if you breathed in and breathed out, then you're alive. And if you're alive, then you're fighting a battle. Someone once said that we should be kind to everyone we meet because everybody is fighting a hard battle. I think that is so true. My own life, the life of my friends, my family, this church would tell me that that is true. And while our situations may be different from one another, there are some strategies that are the same when it comes to doing battle. So today, this morning, what we're going to do is look at four strategies for winning your war. I don't know what your war is. I don't know if that's relational or financial or marital or spiritual or whatever. But I want to give you some strategies for winning your war. And they all come from the word of God. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 17. We're continuing a series that we're calling Forward. Because when God is moving, he always moves us forward. Right. And so we're going to be in Exodus chapter 17. I want to put some context around this. Um, And actually, I'm going to stop somewhere on my way to Exodus 17. But... What has happened is the Israelite people, this is several thousand years ago, they've been living in Egypt as slaves 430 years. Moses, of Prince of Egypt fame, has said to Pharaoh, let my people go. They've crossed through the Red Sea miraculously. They've hit some trouble spots and and Exodus 17 is going to be another one. But what they're doing is they're now making their way to the other side of the Red Sea from where Egypt is. I want to show this to you on a map. Uh, Memphis, I won't make any jokes this morning, I promise, um, is, is the capital of Egypt, and the people are moving east, um, and you, I'll tell you more about this in a second, but w- what they've done is they've crested through the Red Sea, kind of at the tip top there, and then they've headed south, which is interesting because where they need to end up is north. I'll tell you why in a second. They're heading south, and if you were to hold up your fingers like this, you see kind of the two, uh, what would you call those, like fingers of the Red Sea? kind of like a peace sign, the Israelites are about right here, okay? It's like the way that people from Michigan tell you where they're from. I'm from here, right? So this is where the Israelites are. Unfortunately, it is not going to be a place of peace for them, and there's two reasons. First, they once again don't have water. Now, when you're wandering through the desert, and keep in mind, a lot of these were older people, a lot of these were families with young children, I mean, can you imagine they're, they're refugees in the desert? They have no home. They have no place to go. And their children are thirsty. And what happens when your children are struggling, the parents are struggling. And the parents are thirsty. And they begin once again to complain to Moses. And we see the same sequence over and over again. You should have let us die in Egypt. You've, you've, you're a bad leader. Why are we here? But this time it ramps up. This time Moses says, hey, God, the people are about to stone me. (laughs) He's like, you called me to lead these people. You told me to get them out of Egypt, but they're ready to kill me, so I'm going to need some help here. But thirst is not the only issue. They're also 
engaged in Exodus 17 with people that are called the Amalekites. Now, I'm going to throw that map up one more time. I want to share with you uh, who these Amalekites are, and I want to talk to you about the route that Israel's taken, and this is going to matter. Where Memphis is, is where, and Cairo, that's where the people of Israel were slaves. Where they need to get is to the east and north and kind of out of, out of the map is, is where they're headed. But there's two problems. One is named the Philistines and one is named Amalekites. And the route from Egypt to Canaan, where they're headed, where the promised land is, is called the Way of the Philistines. Not only that, but along the way, there's a nomadic tribe of people called Amalekites who are ready to just destroy anybody who comes in their way. You go, why in the world are the Israelites so far south when they need to go north? Here's why. Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 to 18. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Instead, God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. By the way, file away that equipped for battle phrase. That's going to come back in a second. By the time God's people arrive at this place called Rephidim in Exodus chapter 17, right here in the Red, above the Red Sea, they are far enough away from Egypt with enough experience of God's presence that they've stopped talking about going back. Okay? Now, they're not happy. They're like ready to die. But what you don't hear this time is, we should just go back to Egypt. You know why? Because they're two months travel through a desert away from Egypt on the opposite side of the Red Sea. They can't go back. Why does that matter? Well, here's why. God knew that if shortly out of Egypt they encountered too much opposition, where would they want to go? Back to Egypt. He says, I'll let them be a little hungry and I'll provide for them. I'll let them get a little thirsty and I'll provide for them. But if they encounter warfare, they're going to go running back. You know, it works the same sometimes spiritually. You, you first come to know Jesus. You start, first start pursuing God. You first start attending a church for the first time. And man, everybody's so friendly and, and there's this incredible vibe and presence. And man, I'm seeing myself like overcoming sin like never before. My relationships are better. Man, this Christian thing is wonderful. Hang on. <laughs> you haven't encountered warfare yet. Because God knows in those early days, we're going to keep the training wheels on. We're going to give you enough experience of the move and the activity of God, get you far enough out of the land of unbelief and faithlessness that by the time you encounter it, you go, well, I guess I'm stuck here now. (laughs) This is also what Jesus did with the disciples. They've been following him for a while. And in John chapter 6, there's this massive amount of people. Some of you know the story. The disciples are like, hey, Jesus, send the people home. It's late. He's like, no, no, we're going to feed them right here. Miracle of the fish and loaves, 5,000 fed. It's this wonderful thing. The problem is Jesus interprets the miracle this way. He says to the people, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't have anything to do with me. And the people are like, we're out. (laughs) That's where we draw the line, right? And of course, Jesus was speaking metaphorically. He was making the point, you're following me because you're getting your bellies full. I'm here to save your soul. I'm here to transform your life. They didn't want that. 
So all the people leave and Jesus turns to the disciples in John chapter six. He says, hey guys, are you gonna leave too? And Peter makes what I, I believe is one of the greatest statements of faith in all of the Bible. He says, Lord, to whom else will we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Now, if it was day two or three, Peter's probably like keeping up with the crowd, right? He's like, I'm out of here. But he'd walked with Jesus long enough. He'd walked in victory, in freedom. He'd seen enough of the presence and move of God to go, I don't like what I'm hearing. I don't like what I'm encountering, but I'm all in. There's no turning back anymore. One more thing before we get into the Exodus 17 passage. Can we show the map one more, just one more time? You know where the, the Israelites are. I showed you kind of just right at the, the tip there of the, of the Red Sea at the bottom there. The Amalekites mostly are way, way, way north of that, which means that they came a long, long way to encounter and to oppose the Israelites, which tells me this. Opposition in our life is not necessarily a sign of God's absence. Sometimes it's a sign of God's presence and activity in our lives. You go, man, this can't be of God because it got really hard. Well, that's kind of how life goes. (laughs) That's kind of how God builds spiritual muscles. That's kind of how God grows our faith is as we encounter opposition when we're ready for it. And Paul said, no temptations come to you except what's common to man. God will give you a way out of it. When it comes, we can know that it's God at work in our lives. So Exodus chapter 17, let's look at verses 8 to 13 uh, and then take a quick pause. Exodus 17, 8 through 13. So Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with a staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and the people with a sword. I told you I want to give you four strategies for winning your war. And the first one is going to be this. Equip for battle. There is something in the human heart that resonates deeply with battle stories, right? For me, it was probably 1994 or 5. I was 12 or 13 years old watching my first rated R movie. I don't watch them regularly now, but I watched my first then. And it was a little movie called Braveheart. I'm pretty sure I painted my face blue later that day. Like, I, I am William Wallace, you know? Like, I was just, it was inspiring. Some of you, it's, it's Star Wars, it's Lord of the Rings, it's The Matrix, or maybe we got some Dune fans, you know, and you're loving the, the, that it's now on the big screen. And, and what is it about these stories that resonates? Could it be that we know instinctively that we too are engaged in a story of battle with life and death implications? We too are warriors on a battlefield. See, the Israelites understood this and it's why they left Egypt equipped for battle. You remember in Exodus 13, it tells us that? They knew we're in Egypt, that's hostile. We're headed to the promised land, that's gonna be wonderful. But there's gonna be a long way between here and there. 
And if if we're going to arrive in the promised land, it's going to be through warfare. So we're going to leave Egypt equipped and ready for battle when it comes. Now, I need to put a huge, huge disclaimer on this as we talk about warfare and battles and enemies. If you are a Christian, your enemies are not a nation or a people or a political party. They're spiritual. Paul unpacks for us in Ephesians chapter 6 what our enemy is and what it looks like. Let me turn there. Ephesians chapter 6 and beginning at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to take your stand. And after you have done everything, to stand firm. This passage teaches us something about who the real warriors in our midst are. They're not those who speak of revolution, but those who speak of revival. They're not the ones with big followings, they're the ones with big faith. They're not ones that stand on platforms, but ones who kneel in their prayer closet. And they may not look like soldiers, but if you meet them on the field of spiritual battle, they are overcomers and they are conquerors. That's what is true in the spiritual realm. These are people who have put on, as Paul said, the full armor of God. But here's the key. In the same way the Israelites left Egypt equipped for battle, people like this that I just described equip themselves for battle because they understand that we are at war. The greatest trick of the enemy is to make you believe he doesn't exist or he's not up to anything. And you will skate through life running like a soldier naked in the battlefield and you will be easy prey for him. Early in my years of following Jesus, I was struggling mightily with sin. I still do. And, and I was looking for, for tools. I was looking for, for resources. I'm going through the Bible and I'm just memorizing anything that felt like it could be a, a good resource for me. And one of the scriptures that I memorized, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, 9, Peter, the one who walked with Jesus, is now an older man. He says, be self-controlled and alert because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Peter says, don't don't be misguided. Don't be naive. You have a very real enemy who is hell-bent on destroying you. Some of you may ask the question, you go, man, is this one of those churches that actually believes like the devil is a real being? (laughs) Yes, we are. (laughs) You need to know that of 27 books in the New Testament, 18 mention Satan or the devil by name and in the context of his being a real being who opposes God and opposes everything that God stands for. And besides that, even if it wasn't in the Bible, I would say if you don't believe in the existence of a being called Satan or the devil, just look around. Look around. Depression, anxiety, failing marriages, addiction, Fear, shame, where is this all coming from? You think people are doing that? It's the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The thief who comes, as Jesus said, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And if you're not ready for him, he's going to take you down. 
Now, the good news is Jesus tags that line. He says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you may have life and have it to the fullest. So we don't need to fear. I don't walk around going, I hope the devil's not here. You know, like, we just equip for battle. We just know that we are engaged in warfare. It says in Exodus 17 that Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. It's interesting in Ephesians chapter 6 when Paul's using the armor of God as a metaphor for how we approach the spiritual life. He says, and take up the sword of the spirit, which is, does anybody know? The word of God. So Joshua overcame with a physical sword, but the people of God don't take up swords. Remember what Jesus told Peter? Hey, Peter, put away your sword. The ones who live by the sword die by the sword. We are not people of the sword, but we are people of the word. And we believe that just in the way that a physical sword can slice through an enemy, that the word of God known and memorized and studied and fed on can equip us and make us ready to overcome the enemy and to overcome temptation in our life. As crazy as it would be to enter a battlefield without a weapon, some of you are living life without the word of God close. And it's showing in in the, the devastation that the enemy is reaping in your life. So what do we do with that? Well, well, here's a couple of things as we get on to the, the second point here. But first, maybe some of you, as we go into November tomorrow, to November has 30 days, maybe you go, you know what? I'm going to read one chapter a day of the Bible in the month of November. Or maybe I'm going I'm to try to pray for 30 days, just try to pray every day for somebody. Like, this isn't legalistic. If pursuing God to you feels legalistic, something went wrong. So I'm I'm just talking about do what you can to get the word of God inside of you. It is our weapon. It is how we equip for battle. Secondly, we engage in prayer. Our uh, director of missional communities, Austin, shared a quote with me a little while back. And we, we, neither of us could find who who said it originally. I, I found it this week. It was Oswald Chambers who said, prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. We think, I got to pray to get ready. No, no, no. In prayer, we are doing battle. In prayer, we are winning the victory. In prayer, we are overcoming and conquering. But we go, where where is prayer in Exodus chapter 17? Well, I would make the argument that when Moses goes to the top of the hill and when he takes the staff of God in his hand and he lifts it up high, what he's doing is calling on God to act. Like that, that's what the staff represented. When they were leaving Egypt, every time Moses raised his staff, the plagues would come on Egypt. When they got into the Red Sea and got knee deep, Moses raised his staff and the water parted. So here, as Joshua and the Israelite men are fighting the war, Moses is raising his staff to heaven saying, God, would you intervene? God, would you, would you give favor to Joshua and the men as they fight? God, would you protect them? And I'm sure even Moses' mind is occupied with prayer even as his hand is raised. But then you know what happens. It starts to get tired. Nikki would hate that I would admit this, but I, I used to do puppetry. <laughs> it was a high school thing. It's, we all did weird things in high school, right? And, uh, and it was a youth group, so it was even weirder. But nonetheless... Man, it's hard to keep your arm up. It's like even if you're not holding anything, like over time, it, and, and what happens is Moses' arms start to, to go, and Israelites start losing the battle, right? So, so every time they're up, they, they win. Every time his arms go down, they lose. And God wanted to teach the Israelites something. God wanted to teach Joshua, the commander of that army, an important lesson. That victory would not come through the strength of their military, but through the work of God. 
over and over and over again in the book of Exodus. We see, and in Joshua and Judges as well, the people of God, they win when they call on God and they lose when they fail to do so. It's why David said in Psalm chapter 20, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. David recalled being a young man on a battlefield with a giant and slinging a stone into his forehead and knowing that it was not by his skill or strength, but by the grace and mercy of God that he won his victory. Now, I think there's in Exodus 17, a specific type of prayer that we could kind of compare what Moses is doing to, and that's intercession or intercessory prayer. You know, there's a lot of different ways you can pray, right? Like you can pray like, God, I just, I need to sense your presence. I need you to be close with me. You can pray, God, uh, help me to, to ace this test that I didn't study for or whatever. Like, like there's a lot of, but intercession is a different kind of prayer. Intercession or intercessory prayer is when I stand in the gap for somebody else and say, God, I know this marriage is struggling. God, I know this child is hurting. God, I know this person is a long way away from you and I'm praying, I'm stepping into their place for them and praying, interceding for God to work. And what happens is that Joshua's success on the battlefield is a direct result of Moses' intercession for him, which, which leads me to this question. Who in your life has had their hands raised for you? I bet it was someone parent, a grandparent, a friend, a sibling. Among the many people that have prayed for me over the years, one was my mom. My mom passed away when I was 18 years old. We found her Bible. She had her Bible on her uh, nightstand or like, not nightstand, but like in the living room next to the couch, end table, I guess that's called. And that's where her Bible sat. And after she passed away, you know, we're going through what little things she had. She didn't have a lot. And, and her Bible, right on the inside of the Bible, there was a piece of paper had a list of me and all six of my siblings names and next to each of our names was the specific things that she was praying for us up until the day that she died and I know 20 something years later as I stand here that any victories I have in life any successes any any uh, battles that I overcome in a part of that is because I had a mom that prayed for me a part of that is because I have people in this church that pray for me See, see, we believe in the power of prayer. Prayer is not something that's ritualistic. It's not superstitious. It's it's not something we do because we're supposed to. We believe that when we engage in prayer, that it shifts the battlefield landscape. So who has had their hands raised for you? And secondly, and also important, who do you have your hands raised for? Let me ask it this way. Husbands, when's the last time that you prayed for your wife? Wives, when's the last time that you prayed for your husband? Parents, grandparents, when's the last time that you prayed for your children or how consistently are you doing it? Students, are you praying for your classmates that they would come to know Jesus? Those of us who are adults, same question for us in the workplace. Are we praying for other people? It makes a difference. Not only on an individual level, but I believe prayer is the engine that drives this church. See, we can't think that it's enough to just show up at a place called Horizon West and have a big auditorium and better space and go, man, man, now we're going to blow it out of the water. No, we need the favor of God to rest on us. We need God to intervene and to act on our behalf or it doesn't happen. 
So, so would you pray for this church? Would you pray for me? Would you pray for Marcy, Justin, the, the deacons, the leadership teams, the staff? We need your prayers and to be praying for you as well. Third strategy for winning your war is this, enlist support. Again, early in my Christian life, um, as I started to get beyond kind of the honeymoon phase, I started encountering some real challenges and some things that had kind of gone on the back burner started to come back to the front burner. And I found myself struggling with sin and, 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 and being overcome. And I can remember praying, God, would you please deliver me from this sin? Like, please, I'm begging you. I don't ever want to do it. In fact, God, I'm never going to do this again. You, know, you make those vows and you barter. And God, I promise I'll, you know, and again and again and again. And I look back on that now and I know why God did not deliver me from that sin, why he didn't answer that prayer. God knew that I needed a struggle that was so big and so heavy that I would eventually have to ask somebody to help me carry it. And here's what's crazy. You know God wants you to live a holy life. You know God wants you to walk in victory. But did you know that God is willing for you to struggle and to wrestle with sin and temptation because the value of living in community with other people is even greater. Like, like God doesn't want like cookie cutter, like perfect, 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 right? He could do that. He gives us these burdens. He allows us to carry burdens and we go, I don't know what to do. And, and he's like, well, I have a solution. James said it this way. Confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. We, and by the way, that, that's an important part. It's not so that you may be forgiven. Why? Because people can't forgive you. And if you're a Christian, you're already forgiven. So confession doesn't for bring forgiveness. What confession does is it brings healing. When I speak the truth to another human being and they don't run a sword through me, I go, okay. <laughs> They're still spinning, right? I can remember doing this and how scary it was to, to put it out there to a trusted friend and go, hey, I'm wrestling with this. I'm struggling with this. But through it, I found the grace and the forgiveness and ultimately the deliverance that God promises confess so that you can be healed. Let me also take the opportunity to talk about a ministry that we have that does exactly this. Every Monday night, we have a ministry that meets at our Oasis campus. It's called Celebrate Recovery. This is a group of people that get together for a wide variety of reasons, but the one common component is that they've all said, hey, I can't do life on my own. I need to do it with other people. And it's a safe and a, a healing space where you can come, whether that's an addiction or a compulsive behavior or a codependency or really anything in your life that you go, this is hurting my life. This is hurting the people I love. We have a place where you can begin to find hope and healing. If you go to our website, horizonwestchurch.com, you can find it there. It's tomorrow night. I'll actually be there tomorrow night. Um, celebrate recovery at 630. Um, for some of you, that's going to be your next step. Did you know that even Moses couldn't sustain the work God had called him to without enlisting support? Let's talk about that for a minute. These two guys, Aaron and Hur, it's like, who are these? Well, Aaron is Moses' brother. He's the high priest. That means he's like the big shot of the, of the community. And then Hur, who scholars believe and commentaries believe, is the father of a man named Caleb, who's also kind of a significant person in Exodus. So Aaron and Hur, and they come and they, they hold Moses' arms up, but what I find very interesting in the passage is there's no evidence that Moses asked them to do that. Do you know what happened? They were close enough to Moses to see that he needed them. 
Can I talk to the guys for just a minute? I, I mean, I can talk to you because I'm one of you. I know that we like to talk about the game last night. And I know we like to say, oh, I'm, I'm busy. Oh, busy's good. Yeah, pat on the back, go on with the day, right? Guys, you need men in your life who know you well enough that when your arms start falling, when your marriage starts failing, when, when the sin starts to overcome, there's some guys that can catch you, some guys that can help to hold you up. If Moses needed it, I guarantee you need it, and so do I. So for me, that's every Tuesday morning, just one of the components is every Tuesday morning meeting with two guys that I do life with, and we meet together. And this is not, some of you have PTSD from accountability groups, like you can remember going and the people were like, had the checklist and like, did you look at this? Yep. Did you do this? Yep. Yep. And they're like, okay, well, you're terrible, but I guess God forgives you. <laughs> you're like, okay. You know, I'm not talking about accountability groups. That, that, if you can do that well, do it. But what I'm talking about is friendship. You need friends in your life, men. You need friends in your life, women, who know you well enough that even if you tried to fake it, they'd go, nah, I'm not buying that. So, so Tuesday mornings when I show up, like if I'm just kind of like keeping it surface or trying to fake it, like they know. And if they can't tell, they're going to find out because our wives all talk. Like, so that's, right? I need an Aaron. I need a her. And so do you. And so this is what they do. They, in, he enlists their support. And the result is so powerful that because they held his arms up, it says that Moses' hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Have you ever felt like just quitting? Quitting the relationship, quitting the job, quitting the kids, quitting whatever it is. Just, I just don't want to do this anymore. I used to. I haven't, by the grace of God, had this thought in a long time. But I used to have this like, image of me just like packing my car and driving to California. I don't know why. That was, just, that was my like, escape. Like I'm going to get out of here in younger days. And, and, and some of us feel like that. We're like, we're trying to honor God. Maybe it's for you. Maybe it's with your singleness or your sexuality. Maybe you're, you're still trying to fight for your marriage. Maybe you're trying to pray for a struggling child or just simply living as a Christian in a world where it's really hard to do that. And maybe you feel like quitting. But what you need is not to quit. You need what Moses needs. You need some guys just to notice. You need some women, ladies, to notice and to come alongside you and to support you and to encourage you so that you can keep going. Let me give you the fourth strategy for war, fourth and final. Exalt the Lord. Exodus 17, I want to read the last few verses here, 14 through 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And so Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. If I were to ask you, who won that war against the Amalekites? I wonder how you'd answer. You could say Joshua. I mean, he was the one fighting the battle. He's the one carrying the sword. You could say Moses, because Moses is the one interceding for him and, and standing in the gap for him. But you might say Aaron and her because they came alongside and held his arms up like, who gets the credit for this? And every single one of those men would say, none of us get the credit for this. This war was won because God intervened on our behalf. They say, the Lord is my banner. The, the, the Hebrew is Jehovah Nisi. 
Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner. And what it actually means, we think banner like a sign, it actually means he's my rallying point. It means when the chips were down, when it was late in the game, it didn't look like there was any way we were going to win, God started a rally among us. And because of God, we were victorious over the people. And so God says, hey, Moses, I want you to remember this. And two, two ways to do that. One is write it down. And he says this specifically, write it down for Joshua. Why for Joshua? Because one day that young man who was on the battlefield leading the people would be in Moses' position, leading the entire nation. And God says, Moses, I want him to remember. I want young Joshua to remember. When he's older, when he's in your place, when he's leading, I want him to remember that it is not by his strength or skill or intellect that he will be victorious. It's by my intervention and my activity. And then they build an altar to honor the Lord. Nowhere in all of the Bible will you see the people of God building statues to other people. We like to do that. And then we get in debates over whether we should tear them down. God said, don't build statues, build altars. The glory doesn't go to a person. The glory goes to God. And so they build an altar for the Lord. To exalt the Lord is more than singing. We do that every Sunday, and that's an important part of our worship. But if Sunday mornings is the only time that you worship, you're missing a great opportunity. Because David said in Psalm 34.1, he said, I will exalt the Lord at all times. His praise will continuously be on my lips. And when young David was in a pasture surrounded by sheep, he didn't have an audience. He didn't have anyone to sing to. What he had was a God that he would worship and exalt with his tongue. He would say, Lord, from the rising of the sun to the setting, I praise you. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I won't fear evil because you're with me. He was exalting the Lord continuously. So you can do that at all times. You can do that in a conversation with a friend. You can do that while you're driving to work or coming back. You don't need to have a good singing voice to exalt the Lord. We exalt the Lord when we think right thoughts about him and we bring our mind in alignment with his goodness, his character, his beauty, his love. And all the better when we give voice to that and express that back to him. Let me make one final point. And then I want to open up the room for anyone who would want to come and receive prayer. This place, Rephidim, was the first warfare that the Israelites would experience. It would not be their last. But as they went into that battle, I don't know what they thought was going to be the outcome. They were outnumbered, out-equipped, outmanned. It could have been their annihilation and their extinction. But you know what Rephidim means, what they called that place? The name Rephidim means to support. So on the other side of the battle, the Israelites knew that they were supported by each other. Joshua, Moses, and Aaron, and Hur, and the army all working together. And they knew that they were supported by God. And I want to tell you this morning, in the room, those watching online as well, you are supported. There is a God who loves you. There is a God who is for you. And not only that, but there is a community here called Horizon West Church that would love to walk alongside you. Life's too hard to go alone. 
As I pray, I'm going to ask our church leadership team to, to come to the front and, and be available for any that would want to receive prayer. We're not going to put a time limit on that. Uh, we may close the service if there are still some coming, but I want to invite you in just a moment to come and receive prayer from one of those team members. Let me pray as they come up. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us a way to overcome. God, we don't need to be victims. We don't need to, to, to be doormats. We don't, we don't need to be on the wrong side of the battle. God, we can experience victory because you have gone before us and you are with us and in us. And God, we want to most of all thank you for Jesus, our ultimate champion, the one who won our salvation and our victory at the cross. For an empty tomb that he borrowed for three days and then left behind, God, we thank you for Jesus. And God, for any that would need to come and just receive a word of encouragement, a word of victory, a simple prayer, God, would you lead them to the front that we might pray for them in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service time, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.